Washington, D.C., this is on the ground. As the U.S. again exports its war economy, this time to the border of Russia, here at home the Senate deals a blow, perhaps a lethal blow, to voting rights and democracy. This issue is not just about black folks voting. This is about this democracy crumbling before our very eyes. In 1957, when Dr. King spoke and said, give us the ballot, He did not say that and ask for that, thinking that one day we'd be asked to give up that ballot uh, and sacrifice that ballot at the altar of bipartisanship. And for this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism, a scholar explains why he warned fellow Canadians about the U.S. descending into a violent autocracy. It's one or two steps away from the kind of psychological dynamic that has led to some of the worst violence in human history. So, yes, there are some big flashing warning signs in the United States at the moment. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, this week, as the Biden administration marked its first year in the White House, many grassroots movements that ushered in Biden and gave Democrats majorities in Congress were not cheering. The Sunrise Movement of climate activists issued a statement saying that Biden has failed them. Student loan borrowers feel betrayed by his campaign promises for forgiveness. Even on the Martin Luther King holiday, the theme was no celebration without voting rights legislation. Lydia Curtis reports. On this year's Martin Luther King holiday, celebrating what would have been the 94th birthday of the assassinated civil rights leader, hundreds of marchers in D.C. joined Martin Luther King III and his family to demand voting rights. The march was a joint effort of the National Deliver for Voting Rights campaign and the local annual D.C. Peace Walk to support federal legislation for voter protections. At 10 a.m., hundreds gathered and marched across the Frederick Douglass Memorial Bridge in southeast Washington with force, undeterred by the freezing temperatures. Dr. King's only granddaughter, Yolanda King, led the first chant. Let the Senate hear you! Let the White House hear you all! Spread the word! Spread the word! Have you all heard? Have you heard? We We are going to be be a great generation. generation. Now give yourselves a hand. This march was organized to bring national grassroots pressure on Congress to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act that would restore and strengthen parts of the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which was gutted by Shelby v. Holder and the Brinovich v. DNC Supreme Court decisions. On January 13th, the act passed in the House, but on January 19th, all Republican senators and two Democrats Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona voted against modifying the filibuster requiring 60 votes to pass it. So, more than a year of grassroots mobilizations here in the streets and on Capitol Hill to restore one of King's most important accomplishments, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, was killed in the Senate. But activists and lawmakers here in D.C. and around the country vowed to keep fighting. Reporting from Southeast D.C., I'm Lydia Curtis. After Monday's rally and even after Wednesday's Senate vote, there were continued protests for voting rights on Capitol Hill, including one on Thursday where Representative Jamal Bowman of New York was arrested. 
Wednesday's debate produced scenes of both absurdity and drama, with Senator Joe Manchin using the prop of a poster to justify his support of the Jim Crow filibuster rule. Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon schooled Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa about the racist history of the Senate rules and legislatures, while Senate leader Mitch McConnell actually created a new big lie that the wave of voter suppression laws being passed by Republicans across the country, documented by the Brennan Center for Justice, is actually not happening. And two of the three Black senators, Cory Booker, Democrat of New Jersey, and Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina, actually sparred over voting rights for Black people. Scott, the sort of Clarence Thomas of the Senate, who killed police reform legislation this session, actually voted against this voting rights effort. For his bit part, Booker did deliver a primer on 2022 voter suppression versus pre-1965. You want to know what's going on in Georgia right now? They have a historical pattern of dwindling polling places in the diverse areas, with some voters in Georgia waiting up to 10 hours in predominantly black neighborhoods. Think about this for a second. You want to talk about voter suppression? You're working a job? You're taking care of young kids? And you're going to give up a day's salary in Georgia to vote? You want to talk about a modern-day poll tax? And my friends on the other side are saying that race is not an issue here? I was flabbergasted that someone could stand up here and say there's not a different experience for blacks and whites from voting. I'm just going to continue to read the facts. Egged on by corporate media, the United States increased its threats of sanctions and upped its military assistance in Russia's border conflict with Ukraine this week. Secretary of State Antony Blinken stated Thursday in Berlin that Russian President Vladimir Putin is, quote unquote, challenging Ukraine's right to exist. Joining me to discuss the latest is on the grounds geopolitical analyst Professor Gerald Horn. He's the Morris Professor of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. His more than three dozen books includes the instant classic, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Welcome back to the show, Gerald. Thank you. Well, as we've discussed many times on the show, the way the corporate media is framing this crisis is so dangerous because most Americans don't know Two or three important points. One, that the United States, NATO, its European partners promised Russia that it would not expand to the east, you know, after the Berlin Wall came down. And yet, since that time, they have surrounded Russia and Russia's neighbors and made them members of NATO and supplied these countries with weapons that can be offensive against Russia. And the second thing that people don't talk about that we've talked about is 2014, when the U.S. assisted in a coup against the democratically elected government in Ukraine, setting in place the roots of this current crisis. And we know that Crimea and the eastern part of Ukraine has always been a part of Russia. And Russia reclaimed Crimea during that crisis and that struggle. I wanted to give people a little background before we talk about what's happening now, because You know, most people listening to corporate media will hear Russia's planning to invade Ukraine and not understand that, like we discussed last month, Putin has made it very clear he doesn't intend to have these offensive weapons even closer to them than they are now. Well, this is a very dangerous crisis, as you rightly suggest. And I think a useful way to look at it is compare it to the October 1962 crisis, the so-called Cuban Missile Crisis, where the United States was willing to blow up the world because the Soviet Union had placed defensive missiles in Cuba to help to ward off a threatened U.S. invasion. And yet now, (laughs) with the shoe on the other foot, uh, we see that Washington typically is engaging in a bit of hypocrisy and hypocritical double standards. And 
it's even worse because you look at the European Union, which has been shut out of many of the discussions between the United States and Russia, and perhaps understandably, but at the same time, it reveals the EU as a giant with feet of clay. You may have noticed that President Macron of France gave a speech just the other day where once again he talked about so-called strategic autonomy of the EU and implicitly would lead to a sidelining of the U.S.-dominated NATO. But I don't think listeners should hold their breath for that to take place, quite frankly, because at the same time, in order to keep the lid on its neo-empire in Africa, particularly Mali, where French troops were just asked to depart, uh, France has to depend more readily and heavily upon U.S. aerial and satellite assets, which will then make France more dependent upon U.S. imperialism at the same time. I think we should also uh, keep in mind what was reported in the Financial Times of London just the other day, that all of this blather and bluster about stiffening sanctions against Russia uh, might be a bit of hot air, not only because it might come back to bite Europe, which is heavily dependent upon natural gas from Russia to keep warm in the winter, not to mention oil to power automobiles and factories. But also, Russia has been busily squirreling away foreign reserves, uh, almost approaching a trillion dollars. They've been dumping U.S. bonds. They're snuggling ever closer to the People's Republic of China. And some analysts have suggested that we may be living through an inflection point. That is to say, right before our very eyes, we may be witnessing the eclipse of the hegemony of the North Atlantic bloc and the ascension of a bloc led by China, Russia, including Iran, for example, whose leader was just in Moscow the other day. Now, underline May, but certainly that needs to be kept in mind. And I'm not sure how to report on this next point uh, because it may be fake news, but I think listeners in Washington should be made aware that uh, some media outlets are reporting that putting a thumb in the eye of the Pentagon, uh, Russian submarines have been cruising off the coast the Atlantic coast, uh, not too far from Washington, D.C. In other words, Moscow, according to these reports, is trying to force the United States to play defense of a sort. Once again, I'm not sure how to credit that story, but it is out there. So this is a very serious and dangerous crisis. Hopefully the meeting that takes place on Friday the 21st between Secretary of State Blinken of the U.S. and uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov of Russia and Geneva will bear fruit. But uh, keep in mind that Moscow is demanding that Washington respond in writing uh, to its demands that were put in writing some weeks ago. And I'm not sure if in his briefcase, Mr. Blinken will have the requisite written response. It's one of those stories where you know that very little is going to come from these so-called continued talks because Russia is is very clear on where it stands. It's even talked about, I don't know if you want to call it fake news, but did you hear the either, I don't know, made threats or inferred threats that perhaps, you know, Russia could also put missiles uh, in Cuba <laughs> again or put or, or in Venezuela? Or is that fake news? Well, no, I, I heard those stories and I don't think that they're necessarily fake news. But what I will say this, that NATO has become a very dangerous enterprise. It's oftentimes spoken of as a club, as if it's some sort of fraternity of sorts. But recall that it was NATO that led the bombing of the former Yugoslavia that helped to destroy that state. It was NATO that during the bombing of the former Yugoslavia destroyed the Chinese embassy in Belgrade in today's Serbia, which was like a punch in the nose to Beijing, a warning Beijing to, to not step out of line, which obviously was very perilous. It was NATO under President Obama that led to the destruction 
of Libya under Colonel Gaddafi about a decade ago, which has now created a bleeding sore in the heart of Africa, ironically at the behest of the first black president. And NATO is very dangerous because it's doubled in size since 1997. It's taken into membership these small countries like Montenegro, which was formerly part of Yugoslavia, less than a million people under the NATO charter. Uh, The United States is duty-bound to come to defense of Montenegro for whatever reason. The same for North Macedonia. Those countries have relatively small populations, relatively small economies. And who knows what the leaders of these deteriorating regimes might do in order to induce some sort of U.S. military intervention. And U.S. military intervention has to be taken quite seriously. Uh, Just the other day in the Wall Street Journal, the unreconstructed co-warrior Walter Russell Meade called for the United States to dispatch troops, boots on the ground, to Ukraine to back up U.S. threats. Uh, This is why this crisis is so dangerous, why it's spinning out of control. Well, we will keep watching these stories, and all I can say is the struggle continues. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. And those are headlines and happenings. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. Somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. I'm standing here today with, um, I talk about this little young person to my right, who's my great nephew, Jeremiah, who's 10. And he decided he wanted to get involved in the movement. And so today he wasn't supposed to walk and he said, Auntie, can I walk again? And so I do this, I can still do this. And then this sister to my left of me, Mrs. Cora Masters Berry, who's always gonna be our first lady of the District of Columbia and my mentor for the 25 plus years I've been here, who's one of the baddest political strategists I know. I stand with them, I ask them to come stand with me. Because at the end of the day, this fight that we're in, Dr. King said, the vote is the most powerful instrument ever devised by human beings for breaking down injustice and destroying the terrible walls which imprison people because they are different from others. And there's something about that quote, Martin, has just been staying with me, and we've been really... Uh, it's been a rough, rough road. And listening to Senator Sinema the other day made it that much harder. I was a part of a civil rights meeting with several civil rights organization leaders with Sen- Senator Sinema the other day. And sometimes it's, it's not what you say, it's kind of how you, you bring it. And so the lack of sincerity about what we were clearly pleading her to understand the magnitude of the moment. And when we know that this vote, this attack on the vote goes much deeper as this political scientist genius sister always remind us why are we here? And this connection to what's happening with all of our rights, 
being under attack. Cora said the other day, yes, we have rights, but there's something that's borrowed because we have to continue to ask for this vote, to protect our vote, to be reauthorized, and it shouldn't be, but we're here. We're not going to give up. We're going to keep on fighting. No, we don't have the bitter clubs and the hoses, but this country's at a place at a breaking point. This issue is not just about black folks voting. This is about this democracy crumbling before our very eyes. I come out of Florida, a little place called Mims, Florida, Harry and Harriet T. Moore country, whose homes were bombed before I was even born in the 50s. That's where we're headed back to because the element of violence in this country is escalating. We have a former president who keeps pushing it. And so the American people have to stand up. Those of us who are activists and organizers are going to keep fighting and keep pushing. But a year from now, I said it the other day, if we don't get this together, we're not going to recognize this democracy. And so the attack on voting rights, the attack on reproductive rights, even critical race theory, it's all connected because it's about us versus them and not we. So we, the people, will keep fighting. We will keep marching. We will keep protesting until we win. And those senators, I know there's at least 10 of y'all Republicans. In your spirit, you can do the right thing. Step on over to the right side of history. Step on to the right side of history so that Jeremiah and Yolanda and the children yet, yet unborn will see an America as good as this ideals. We'll see an America that will let this young man know he can walk the street, Marty. He can get in a car and not get shot. It's all connected. It is about justice. It is about opportunity. It is about freedom. So let's get this done, America. We can get it done and challenge your senators to do the right thing. Thank you. We're going to hear now from Latasha Brown and Cliff Albright, who are the co-founders of Black Voters Matter. Good afternoon. I was so glad earlier when Martin Luther spoke and he talked about bipartisanship and some of the pitfalls and the contradictions that underlie the positions that certain senators, as well as those in the media, have about bipartisanship. Because at the end of the day, in 1957, when Dr. King spoke and said, give us the ballot, he did not say that and ask for that, thinking that one day we'd be asked to give up that ballot uh, and sacrifice that ballot at the altar of bipartisanship, to give up our votes at the golden calf of bipartisanship. That's not what he had in mind when he said, give us the ballot. And so it's appropriate that we talk about this today, especially today, because on this day of all days, it's actually insulting that you got some folks that are asking us to accept a compromise, this thing called the Electoral Count Act, as if that is voting rights. But that is not what we've been asking for. You know, that would be the equivalent of if LBJ, Lyndon B. Johnson, or, or the con congressional leaders came to Dr. King and said, you know what, Dr. King, we're not going to be able to pass this Voting Rights Act you're asking for. But here's what we got. After they finish keeping you from registering, after they finish making you take literacy tests, after they finish closing your polling places, after they finish having you count the jelly beans, this is what we got for you. We're going to make sure that the count of the votes that they do after that is accurate. That's what we got for you instead of voting rights. That's what we're being asked to accept today on this day. Right. And that is insulting to us, just as it would have been insulting to Dr. King. But I'm not bitter about that. I'm not mad about that because this is what I know. I know that we got two things that those who are asking us to give up our rights, those that are passing voter suppression all across this country, we got two things that, that they're not ready for. We got two things. We got love and we got power. And Dr. King talked about these two things and he reminded us that we need both of these things together because power without love is reckless and abusive. But love without power is sentimental and anemic. And what we know, what our history shows us is when we combine those two things, we can do some mighty, mighty things. And so that's what we're about to do, you all. We are about to continue this fight, regardless of what some folks might say, what some pundits might say, we are going to continue. This process is not over until we say it's over. 
just like the voting rights battle in Selma wasn't over until we defined that it was over. And so we're going to push on because what we know, and I've had a word on my heart for this past week, what we know is that if we grow not weary in well-doing, then in due season we shall reap. If we faint not. And that's what I'm asking of our people. That's what I'm asking of those who believe in freedom. We shall not rest. If we faint not, we can do some mighty, mighty things. If we faint not, we can do the same thing that, that those folks in Montgomery, Alabama, that Dr. King led on a year-long bus boycott. If we faint not, we can get a victory. If we faint not, we can do the same thing as those people in Selma and the Black Bell of Alabama and all across the country where not once, not twice, but three times they had to try to do a march to go from Selma to Montgomery. They made it there because they what? They faint not. And so I'm here to tell you today that we are going to get the freedom to vote in the John Lewis Voting Rights Act because we are going to faint not. We are going to push and in due season we shall reap. This is that season. Thank you. We come this far by faith, and we are leaning on the Lord, and we are trusting, trusting in his holy word, because he has never, he's never failed me yet. Oh, can't turn around. We've come this far by faith. Amen. I'm coming because I think that we also have to recognize that Dr. King more than anything was a man of faith. That at the end of the day, when we're think, talking about our strategies, we have to combine that with the spirit of the movement. When the people, when the spirit of you rise up, we can literally change and transform anything in this country. Let me tell you what spirit can do. There were only 600 people that actually at the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama. They didn't have a lot of power. They didn't have politics on their side. They didn't have a political party representation. There were the Republicans Republicans and the Dixocrats and everybody told them it ain't gonna happen you need to give up you need to stop matter of fact so much so that eventually uh, uh, Dr. King actually wrote and had to tell people around him why we can't wait and I'm coming in to remind you on this day that in the spirit of the movement we have come this far by faith right and we're not gonna turn around we're actually gonna transform this country to be what that we deserve and we desire I'm gonna ask everybody just for a quick second because I know I don't have long but I ask everybody just to close your eyes on this day close your eyes for a second I'm gonna ask you a question my question to you is what would America look like without racism I ask that question because that's the vision that's the vision that I'm standing on and that I believe in at the end of the day aren't we tired of the lies Aren't we tired of being divisive? Aren't we tired of folks being in position of power while the rest and the masses of us want something? What do we want? We all want a better lives for our children. We all want quality education. We all want health care. We all want to be treated with dignity and respect. So I stand today on this podium in the spirit of the movement. And in the spirit of the movement, when you combine that with strategy, you can't lose. And so I want to remind you of who we are and whose we are in this moment. We can win, you all. We can win. Don't listen to what the pundits say. Everything was pointing to, including the president in 1965, that they could not win. Yet they persisted, right? Because when you recognize that there's a greater power here, I do believe that there is a level of decency in Republicans in this country and Democrats in this country. People identify themselves as a Green Party, independent. There is enough of us to actually change the tide. I'm just asking you to stand up in this moment, stand in integrity in this moment, stand in the space of truth, stand for the love of humanity, and I guarantee you we can move beyond a transaction of a bill and we can transform this America to be the America that is laid out in the Constitution. Thank you. We've come this far by faith, leaning on the Lord, and we will not turn around. Let the church say amen. Okay.
Reverend Thea, Liz Theo Harris is an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church, a teacher at Union Theological Seminary in New York City, and co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, which is working towards a moral revival that is necessary to save the heart and soul of our democracy. Reverend Theo Harris. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. celebrated his last birthday calling for immediate action to address racism, poverty, and militarism, drawing the connection between voting rights and economic justice, building a poor people's campaign. Today, there is no other way to honor Reverend Dr. King than to protect and expand voting rights, abolish the filibuster, raise wages, expand health care, and invest in our children and families. And as Yolanda Renee King said, to take action together. As Ashley said, my name is Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris. I'm the director of the Cairo Center and the co-chair alongside the Reverend Dr. William J. Barber II of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival that is organizing poor and low-income people, moral leaders and activists of every age and race and religion and gender and geography in nearly every state of these yet-to-be United States. As Reverend Dr. King said just months before he was shot down, there is nothing wrong with a traffic law which says that you have to stop for a red light. But when a man is bleeding to death, the ambulance goes through those red lights at top speed. There is a fire raging now for the poor of this society. Disinherited people all over the world are bleeding to death from deep social and economic wounds. They need brigades of ambulance drivers who will have to ignore the red lights of the present system until the emergency is solved. With fewer voting rights today than people had more than 50 years ago, despite people dying for those rights, with a rolling coup taking place in state legislatures across the country, working to diminish the power of a multiracial democracy rising up, with 140 million people who are poor and low income, in this the richest country in the world, and a third of the nation's electorate poor and low income, the nation is in desperate need of ambulance drivers who are prepared to run through the red lights of the present system to protect voting rights, to abolish the filibuster, to invest in the infrastructure of our democracy and our daily lives. We must run through the red lights of closed polling places and redistricting in all forms of voter suppression. We must run through the red lights of poverty and homelessness and low wages and unemployment and abandonment in the midst of abundance. The red lights of senators who would rather listen to their wealthy corporate donors than to the demands of the people. Yes, we as a people, from the hood to the holler, from the Bronx to the border, from the California coast to the Carolinas, today on MLK Day and every day, are signing up to be ambulance drivers, readying ourselves to save the heart and soul of our democracy. We're going to push to pass voting rights, establish DC statehood, and end the filibuster, but we will not stop there. We're going to litigate in the courts and push in the legislature and engage in moral direct action in the streets to defend this democracy, to promote economic justice, to save the earth, to demilitarize our communities, to confront Christian nationalism, and to lift, lift, lift from the bottom so that everybody can rise. And we'll be here in D.C. on June 18th for a poor people and low-wage workers assembly, a moral march on Washington and to the polls as we continue to build power. As poor and impacted leaders in states across the country have been saying, our 
deadline is victory. Let's move forward together and not one step back. Thank you. That was the Reverend Liz Theo Harris, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Before her, Latasha Brown and Cliff Albright, co-founders of Black Voters Matter. And the segment started with Melanie Campbell, president and CEO of the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation. They all spoke at a press conference following the D.C. Peace Walk on the Martin Luther King holiday, Monday, January 17, 2022, in Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, when Canadian scholar Thomas Homer Dixon wrote in a recent powerful op-ed in the Globe and Mail that by 2025, American democracy could collapse and that by 2030, if not sooner, the U.S. could be governed by a right-wing dictatorship, the column went viral. For this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism, we present Professor Thomas Homer Dixon, who spoke this week with Pacifica Radio's Verna Avery-Brown on What's at Stake. We start the interview as he explains his research and work. I have, as you indicated, a long academic experience, especially in conflict theory, causes of violence and violent conflict around the world. And I've worked with political scientists in many countries and in the United States. I was trained in the United States at MIT in the field of conflict studies and international relations. So I suppose when I see the warning signals flashing across the American landscape, it's that background knowledge that has given me some understanding and the colleagues I work with some understanding of the signals, the warning signs of civil disorder and civil breakdown and the breakdown of democratic order and institutional order in a society. And unfortunately, the United States is currently checking a lot of those boxes. And it's, it's a deep concern to many people who work in this area. So mm -hmm. I'm just uh, a bit player in this. And to a certain extent, there are many American scholars who are saying very similar things to what I said in the Global Mail article. Mm -hmm. But tell us, what's, what are some of those boxes that are being checked, in uh -huh. your opinion? You mentioned in your intro remarks the big lie. Uh, if I were to point to one thing that actually terrifies me about the state of American democracy, it's the widespread propagation of that falsehood that President Trump actually won the last election and President Biden is an illegitimate president. That is poison within the body politic of American democracy. When you have 30 to 40 percent of the electorate that believes that the institutions are fundamentally corrupt, that won't accept the results of the next election and unless they win. And, uh, and it also creates a situation where that proportion of the American electorate believe that a lot of the rest of the people who supposedly stole the election are not real Americans or kind of should be excluded from the moral community of America. And, uh, and therefore, it doesn't really matter if you torque the democratic system and the electoral machinery in order to keep those people from voting because they shouldn't be voting anyway. And it's your and, right to make sure that they don't. That's right. And so it becomes a kind of moral moral crusade against evil and to defend the, as patriots to defend the real America. And that kind of rhetoric is 
is just extraordinarily dangerous. For those of us who study conflict theory, it's, as I say in the article, it's one or two steps away from the kind of psychological dynamic that has led to some of the worst violence in human history. So, yes, there are some big flashing warning signs in the United States at the moment. Now, Professor, I have a theory that that large majority of Americans, well, I don't know if it's a majority, but that large group of Americans that believe the big lie don't really believe it, but it's more convenient for them to say they believe it than to accept the fact that they actually lost the election. And therefore, they are part and parties to propagating that lie. I think that's actually quite accurate in many respects. So I cite the work of a colleague of mine in England, a young scholar who's becoming one of the world's leading experts on the role of ideology in politics, especially ideology in radical politics. His name is Jonathan Leader Maynard, and he's about to publish a book with Oxford University Press titled Ideology and Mass Killing. And he looks at a lot of case studies through history. And he points out that in many cases, people will sort of passively support an extremist ideology simply because it's kind of in their interest to do so, or they're Mm -hmm. scared that if they don't, they're going to be excluded from the group or even physically threatened in some way. Mm -hmm. One of the things I noticed when I was researching this article for the Globe and Mail, I talked to a number of American experts, and almost without exception, they told me that moderate Republicans are scared, and they're often scared for their family's well-being. If they go against Trump, and if they don't move towards the extremist wing of the Republican Party, they feel physically threatened. And that's the kind of situation Jonathan identifies that drives extremism. So an ideology like the kind that is that Steve Bannon has propagated, that is driving Trumpism, uh, tends to feed on itself, tends to produce more and more extremism, even if a lot of people are are not true adherents. In other words, they don't deeply believe it, but they feel they kind of have to go along publicly because uh, otherwise they're going to be in real trouble. Mm-hmm. And, and who wants to put their family with targets on their backs as well? Now, if for some reason, Professor Donald Trump loses, and let's say a Ron uh, DeSantis, uh, the mini Trump, mm-hmm. uh, self-admitted mini-Trump wins. Do you foresee the same outcome? Uh, In other words, is this trend exclusive to Trump or has he set in motion a dynamic that can actually unfold with another conservative candidate? So that's a vitally important question. And I'm not sure I have, I, I have a full answer to it. First of all, we have to acknowledge that Mr. Trump has a very special ability uh, it is kind of uh, as a special ability as a demagogue and is in his capacity to communicate emotionally with his followers who are enthralled by him, who who adulate him. This is a kind of personality, political personality that comes along fairly rarely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <clears throat> uh, obviously DeSantis is not, doesn't have that capacity, doesn't have the same kind of charisma. So, now, on the other hand, now, now first of all, I, I think that given good health and given positive developments in the midterms, Trump is going to run, right? And so under the current circumstances, I think that there's a good 50-50 chance that he's going to be the uh, the president in 2025. Um, if he's sick or for some reason he stumbles politically and uh, somebody like DeSantis becomes the candidate, I think it's possible that the base will fragment because that charismatic ability is really what's holding it together in many respects, that emotional connection between Trump and his followers. If, however, Trump gets into power again and is able to continue the process of authoritarian consolidation in the United States, eliminating within the federal bureaucracy and the federal state apparatus people who abide by the rule of law, regardless of their party, nonpartisans who basically make the system function within the Department of Justice and otherwise within the military, then I think he could set the stage for somebody like DeSantis, who is administratively more competent to follow on and then further consolidate right-wing authoritarian power in the United States. So I propose in the article that this could be a kind of two-stage process. 
with mm. Trump winning the next election and then followed by a successor who would have more managerial competence than Trump, maybe not the same charismatic connection with his followers, but at that point, that wouldn't matter so much. Mm. So there are a number of pathways forward. But there's one other thing I'd say, Verna, that I think is important. Even if for some reason Trump doesn't win and the base fragments uh, temporarily, the underlying dynamics, the underlying structural problems in the United States remain. Mm. Widening inequalities, the imbalance in voting power between rural and urban areas, the electoral college nightmare, all of that stuff is still there. And the inattention of elites to the crisis is still there, their unwillingness to engage in fixing America. So those are the real problems that have to be addressed over the longer run, regardless of whether Trump runs or not. Mm. So now, how do you see this dire scenario unfolding should Trump win a second term? What do you see happening? Obviously, America won't be recognizable, but how is that going to manifest in your opinion? Well, one thing to say is that much depends on whether it's a clean win, clean, quote unquote, in the sense that it's a sufficient margin of victory that it's not contested. I I actually find that difficult to believe because it's pretty likely that if Trump wins, he will win in the Electoral College and lose in the popular vote, given what we've seen in previous elections. So there will be grounds for real anger and protest across the country. So it's that kind of contested situation, whether the Republican or the Democratic candidate wins, that it gets people thinking about civil war or widespread civil violence in the society. I don't know. But, I don't see the Democrats taking to arms. No, I don't either. I don't either. The most likely possibility is that the Democratic candidate wins and the Republicans don't accept it. Mm-hmm. And then, then mm-hmm. I could see widespread violence. But I want to answer your question because I haven't answered your question yet. <laughs> I appreciate uh, that. Yeah, no, I'm very, very, very conscious of that. So if Trump gets into power, then, you know, as I say in the article, just to put a rather sharp point on it, I say he'll have two aims, vindication and vengeance. He's just such a, a thoroughgoing narcissist. You know, I mean, it's very clear he's got narcissistic personality disorder and he will make it his aim to ensure that everybody who's opposed him, everybody who's crossed him, that he uses the power of the state that he will increasingly consolidate to attack those people, put them out of business one way or the other. And so he will be unleashed substantially. And I don't know about you guys, but as a Canadian living through four years of Donald Trump, that's a horrible scenario to think of Donald Trump both within the country and internationally unleashed a regime like this is not going to get along with Canada. Let's put it that way. Because Canada is a liberal society and there will be a deep distrust. We get a very substantial proportion of our food from the United States. Close the border and it causes a a, a real calamity for this country. Mm. So, you know, I think part of what I was trying to do with this article, and it was really written for Canadians, uh, was pull back the curtains on this scenario that we haven't wanted to think about and say, we better start examining this and thinking about the implications for our country. So your food supply could be affected in Canada. Under the worst case scenario, the border is closed and uh, we get a very, especially during the winter months, a very substantial portion of our food from the United States. You better make room for all the Americans that are going to be streaming (laughs) over there. (laughs) I, I have to say, I've received so many messages from Americans. Now, I've received a lot of messages from Trump supporters. I won't quote those, but I've received many messages from Americans who want to have one foot in the door or already do because they may be dual citizens or something. I think what I've realized in this process, and I, I was just talking to the German ambassador to uh, Canada yesterday, is that there is a sense around the world that those of us who support democracy need to pull together to help the United States through this process to the, as best we can. And I think in a funny sort of way, I wasn't expecting this, but the article I published in the Globe and Mail had a lot of credibility in the United States because people are saying, wow, if the Canadians are taking this seriously, then there must be a real problem here. And so I'm glad that it's helped stimulate, maybe push the Overton window a little bit and actually open up the conversation, especially on the Democratic side, get people focused on what the main game is here 
Mm-hmm. The main game is saving democracy in the United States right now. But what really, Professor, what could other countries do to try and have an impact on the dynamics that are unfolding in the U.S. Well, at this time? Yeah, not, not much. I mean, in truth, <laughs> we, we have we have uh, there are three quarters of a million Canadians in the United States, emigres. Uh, um, many of them are highly influential. But, you know, we have to be so careful not to be perceived as kind of a fifth column as interfering in American affairs. <clears throat> on the other hand. I think my sense is and engaging with hundreds and hundreds of Americans over the last two weeks since the piece came out and doing many interviews is that there is a there is disarray to a certain extent among democratic forces in the United States, especially with the clear end to the legislative path to protect voting rights in the United States mm-hmm. with the gridlock in the Senate around the Freedom to Vote Act. So there's this sense that. Canadians may have something to say useful about how to proceed in this case. I don't know how much we do. I just think that there's, there is potentially something that Canadians can say here to give the sense to uh, Democrats in the United States that they're not alone, that they are, they are participating in a larger battle for democracy that actually affects the whole world, not just the United mm-hmm. States. There's also a wave of fascism and authoritarianism. Uh, sweeping through parts of the world at the same time. So, but let me ask you this, Professor, you write about political and social indications. What's showing up on the social landscape that indicates authoritarianism rule could take hold here in the U.S.? I guess if I were to point to one thing, it would be the proliferation of militias, heavily armed militias, the three percenters, the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Boys, you know, you know who they are. Uh, mm-hmm. The widespread distribution and availability of firearms in the United States, like 400 million weapons in civilian hands, and the increasing rhetoric around what my colleague Jonathan Leader Maynard calls a hardline security doctrine. So especially within Republican circles, the idea that there are enemies within, that there are groups that are have infiltrated civilian sectors of the society that need to be identified and, and eliminated in order to protect America. So mm-hmm. that kind of ideology, which you're hearing increasingly, uh, not just in extreme circles within the Republican Party, but increasingly in more mainstream circles, is, is extremely dangerous. It's part of that self-reinforcing cycle of ideological extremism I talked about before. Mm-hmm. So that kind of hardline security doctrine becomes becomes the organizing principle for these militias. Mm-hmm. We have to go out. We have to find these people who are a threat to America and and take them out. That's uh, all clearly evident in the United States now. Of course, we, we know where that leads. Ultimately. You know, a recent Washington Post, University of Maryland poll showed that one third of Americans say violence against the government could be justified. I'm really not surprised by that when you think about those Second Amendment people that are running around, uh, you know, defenders of bearing, you know, right to bear arm. They're sitting there in front of the Christmas tree. They're all cradling, you know, various forms of weapons and whatnot. So that doesn't surprise me. Some scholars predict that we're headed towards a civil war. Do you believe that with the 400 million firearms in the hands of civilians? Well, it's unlikely to be a civil war of the kind that the United States experienced last time, where you had massed armies on each side battling along front lines. Instead, what scholars are talking about is more like uh, sporadic outbreaks of really vicious civil violence in different parts of the country where uh, people feel that they've been excluded or that their votes haven't counted or something like that. As we talked about before, especially in an election that's contested where Democrats appear to have won, but extremist Republicans don't accept that result. Mm -hmm. So I think that polling result that you referred to, I think is significant, but it also has to be put in the American context. This is a society that was founded against, was founded on the principle of rebellion against arbitrary authority. Uh, mm-hmm. a revolution against arbitrary authority and a deep distrust of government and of state institutions of state at the national level especially so in some ways i'm not surprised by that poll result 
I think that another poll result is perhaps more disturbing, which is you have somewhere around 20 to 30 million adults in the United States who are willing to say not only did President Biden not win the last election and is illegitimate, but violence is justified in overturning that result. So the two things together indicate that those folks are really what uh, the political scientist Robert Pape calls committed insurrectionists. Mm. So you have two, maybe three tens of millions, you know, there's 20, 20 to 30 million Americans who believe that it's actually justified under certain circumstances to overturn a presidential election with arms, with violence. And that, I think, is a pretty disturbing result. I would have to agree with you on that. Now, people like Rush Limbaugh and other right-wing talk show hosts, the social media and Fox News, they're really only part of the problem. You write that it's actually woven into the original foundation of America. And you point to the political compromise of the electoral college that slavery spawned. My understanding, since I wrote that, is that there's actually quite a bit of controversy about the extent to which the electoral college was part of a deal with slave states in the United States. So that's one part of the article that I might amend. Certainly the original sin of slavery in the United States is part of the American crisis right now. The ongoing uh, internal debate and antagonism over racial issues within the United States has uh, it, it still still inflames the country and especially inflames conservatives. So the Electoral College itself, though, regardless of where it originated and whether it was part of a deal with the, the slave states in the United States to sustain their power, the Electoral College torques the uh, influence of conservative areas of the country. It sort of ramps it up and, and ramps up the influence, especially of rural states. In a time when the majority of the population in the United States now is urbanized. So it's very different from when the country was founded. The Senate itself overrepresents rural votes and rural states. And yet uh, the majority of the population is in cities and in urban areas. And so the result is that some people's vote count a lot more than others. This is, of course, a truism. Everybody understands that. And it's why Biden can win the election by 7 million votes in the popular vote. But if only 43 or 45,000 votes had shifted in certain swing states, he would have lost the Electoral College. This is not a functional democratic system. This is not the way it should be working, especially when the country is going through this enormous demographic transition. And frankly, white communities are evolving ultimately towards a minority status within the country. And that's something that a lot of of those communities are just not prepared to accept. And that's the underlying driver of this crisis. And Professor Thomas Homer Dixon will have the last word on today's show. Special thanks to Lydia Curtis, Professor Gerald Horn, Ben Zinovich, and Verna Avery Brown for their contributions to the show. At our website, onthegroundshow.org, you can check out this and all of our current and past shows. Contact us and support us. You can also let us know you like the show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at onthegroundshow. And you can follow me on Instagram at Esther, E-S-T-H-E-R underscore Averum. I be like Victor, E-R-E-M. Our podcast is On the Ground with Esther Averum, and you can subscribe on all of your podcast platforms. Our podcast, our social media pages and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included a mix of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. speaking and music by the Esperance Fenton Trio. And from a DC go-go band playing at this year's DC Peace Walk. And we're going to try to get their name and post it on the website. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. Until next time, take good care and keep raising your voice. Peace. Happy New Year, On the Ground listeners. Thank you so much to Sean and Cheryl and 
some of the other listeners who have gotten on board with us and joined our Patreon page. We are a totally independent operation, independent journalism uh, produced here from Washington, D.C. We don't have any corporate backing. You see, we don't have any advertising and we don't want any. We want to be supported by our listeners and by the people. So please, uh, if you enjoy the podcast, go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash on the ground show and uh, become a member on Patreon. Uh, That's the best way because I can send you automatically an email every time we post the show. Whenever we post bonus content, we're going to post bonus content today from Gerald Horn talking about voting rights talking about a scandal involving Bain Capital ripping off South Africa. And so becoming a member on Patreon will give you access to all that kinds of bonus content. You can also go to the website on thegroundshow.org and click on the donate now or donate uh, support button. And it will tell you all ways you can give, including PayPal. And for those, anybody who uh, wrote a check and sent it to us, We apologize. We had some problems with our mailing system. And so if you received a return check, please return it back and at that same address and we will get it. We've gotten everything straightened out. Anyway, thanks so much, everyone, for listening and supporting. And uh, I can't wait to uh, bring you next week's show.